0: So today we're starting our Moses series. And so who is Moses? Now depending on what age group you're in, you might think of Moses as the Prince of Egypt, or you might think of him as Charlton Heston in that 50s film, The Ten Commandments. Does anyone here remember that scene? Yes, lots of people. Anyone know him as Prince of Egypt? Yeah, Disney, lots of fans, there we go. And of course, he was famous, spoiler alert, if you don't know who Moses is, for the escape from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments, and we all know a little bit about Moses. But who is this man who was born in humble surroundings, raised in a palace, and then he becomes the rescuer of a whole nation. And so over the next seven weeks, we're going to discover who Moses really is. So today we're going to kick off with a little bit of a background. How did Moses get into this situation in Egypt right in the beginning? Well, do you remember Joseph and his technicolor dream coat? Remember, there was Jacob, 12 brothers. Joseph was the 11th brother. He gets put in a pit. He goes off to Egypt. He gets rescued. He becomes prime minister to Pharaoh. And there he is. uh, Do you remember with the famine, the seven years of famine, the seven years of plenty? And there's this emotional reunion when Jacob finally comes to Egypt and uh, he reconciles with Joseph and the 11 brothers, because, of course, they sold him into slavery. Oops, that was a bit awkward. And then years later, they all reconcile, and they all move to Egypt. And so the 12 brothers, they represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and they move to Egypt with their father, Jacob. And they all live there. And about 70 people move and start off their family in Egypt. And what happens, this family thrives and grows, and it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. But what happens, after a while, obviously, Joseph and his brothers and all that generation die. And God has blessed their family, but it's, it is, it's thriving, it's multiplied, and now it's huge. But now trouble comes, and a big change comes to this family who've been welcomed into Egypt and are living there. In Exodus 1, 8-12, it tells us this, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people... The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. And this new king realizes there's a tribe within Egypt who are not Egyptian. These Hebrews, what if another army came to fight Egypt? What if the Hebrews turned and joined with the enemy? They would surely be overrun. And so he had a plan. And so it says in verse 11, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They made their lives bitter and harsh with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. So here is a terrible turn of events where you're living in a country where you suddenly become enslaved in what you thought was home. And yet God blesses them, and they increase in number all the more, even though this becomes very cruel and and oppressive. So when Pharaoh sees this doesn't really work, he's enslaved them, but they're still growing. He comes up with a new tack. He doesn't want to lose his slaves, but he certainly wants... Don't need to change microphone. Is this okay? Sounds like it's going in and out to me. Is it okay for you? Okay, fine. So Pharaoh tries a new tack. So Exodus 1 says this. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, instructed the Hebrew midwives, their names were Shiphrah and Pua, to kill all Hebrew boys as soon as they were born, but to let the girls live. Now this is chilling, isn't it? He doesn't want to leave, lose his slave force, but he wants to stop the Israelite nation growing. And so he tells the midwives to kill every baby boy at birth. But they choose to... Uh, disobey the king. They're not going to murder baby boys at birth, and they trust God, and they disobey. So Exodus 1 says, so God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. So can you see how everything Pharaoh tries, it backfires on him, and God just brings a blessing that there's greater increase. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own, which was a great blessing. But the situation gets worse. When Pharaoh sees it's not working, in, in Exodus 1, it says this, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. That this is a chilling edict, isn't it? What a terrible thing. So first of all, the midwives are supposed to, you know, fudge it at birth, that if it's a boy, they die, but um, they choose not to do that. But now there's a rule that the soldiers will go around every pregnant Hebrew woman and they will take every child that is a boy and throw them into the Nile where they will drown or be eaten by the crocodiles. This is very, very cruel and a shock to all the people. And then Moses is born into this context. And in Exodus chapter 2, it describes the birth of Moses. So this is the context of Moses' birth. So let's start the story now. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. And so in this story, it's amazing story in Exodus 2, we see the future rescuer is rescued himself. And we can see what a dangerous undertaking to put a live little baby in a river in a basket. So we're gonna look at three thoughts about this story. And the first one is all about the slaves. So I want to look a little bit at the history of what was going on at the time. Now it's interesting that there's a lot of evidence for Hebrews and Semitic people enslaved in Egypt at this time in evidence outside the Bible. And there's lots of different artwork, texts, you know, saved papyrus that come all the way down the years demonstrating that Hebrew people were used for slave labor specifically in the beginning of the dynasty that fits perfectly with the Exodus. So we're going to look at a few of those. One of them is the Papyrus Brooklyn. And this has a list of slaves, including Hebrew names. And that's a giveaway that Hebrews were slaves at the time in the list of slaves. There's slave names. One name just simply says, the Hebrew. And then other names are feminine versions of Jacob's family. Jacob, Asher, Issachar. Also in this list, we find the name of Shipra, who also, that was the name of the midwife. So I'm not saying it was the midwife, but that is a common name used at that time. So that's really interesting. There's other Egyptian texts as well. There's one called the Hermitage Papyri, and this talks of Semites being forced into building projects. I was watching this YouTube video by um, a guy called Titus Kennedy, PhD, that Matthew put me on, and he gets so excited about this and all the history, and he says, We definitely know this was going on, just like Exodus talks about. And you didn't know archaeology could be so exciting, but this man is passionate about it. Also, there's evidence of brick making, that slaves were required to make bricks just out of mud and straw. And the most famous evidence about this is in the tomb of Rechmir. And he was the Egyptian prime minister in that dynasty. And painted on the walls of his tomb are scenes of slaves, some Semitic, making bricks and making buildings. If you look at the picture on the screen there, the one on the right is like the big um, picture of what was painted on the wall. And the one on the left is a little, um, it's the corner of, of the left blown up bigger so you can see. And there you can see slaves making the bricks and building walls with them. Another thing that they found was the Louvre leather roll because it's kept in the Louvre, Paris. And this is an Egyptian text on a leather scroll actually specifically dealing with quotas. And so different groups of slaves had quotas they had to meet of brick making. And uh, one group of slaves, it's recorded in the Louvre roll here, that um, sounds a bit like something else, doesn't it? But the um, leather roll kept in the Louvre. (laughs) Um, A group of slaves, they were no longer given straw to make the bricks. And uh, the straw is what kind of holds it all together. It's very hard to make a brick without the straw. And so they were forbidden, they were, you know, denied the straw, and they failed to make their quota and got beaten for it. And on the list is a guy called Paraphegit, son of Pazer, and he was one of the brickmakers who failed to deliver his quota of 2,000 bricks and got beaten for it. So we've seen the same events of the Exodus story and some of the things that we'll see next week as well, exactly in the same historical context. Now, another archaeologist, Sean McDowell, he was interviewing Titus Kennedy, and this is a quote from the two together. Um, Titus said this, we have good archaeological evidence outside of the Bible for Semitic people in the area of Egypt before the Exodus. We have Hebrew names of people that dates the time of the Exodus, evidence they made bricks with quotas for buildings, just as we see in the Exodus story. So that's interesting, isn't it? And uh, many times when we're studying the Bible here, we find evidence that they have uncovered through archaeology to back up uh, these things that happened in history. So the reason this is important. The story of Moses sometimes is almost known as like a cartoon story, like the cute little baby in the basket. But if you think of the reality of the time, the harsh reality of these people living in slavery and driven to hide a child and have to put it in a river that's infested with crocodiles in nothing but a basket, this is the reality of somebody's faith um, to make sure that Moses' destiny happens. So we see how there's this context and climate of oppression and how they have to look after this baby for three months. And what interests me here is the daily faithfulness. And sometimes, you know, God has a destiny for us, but our daily faithfulness in the little things is what gets us there. And so Moses' parents saw somehow that this was a special child and they had to keep him alive and not let him be thrown in the Nile. So for three months, they keep him quiet and hidden. How do you do that? Now, it's not too bad at first. They sleep a lot. But by the time they're three months, I remember um, Precious sending us a little video of Josiah when he was three months old. Here he is at three months. And I remember she took this little film because at three months, it's the first time he rolled over. And uh, on the little film, she goes, oh, I missed it. She reached to get her cup of tea and turned back, and he wasn't where she'd left him. And he'd rolled over for the first time. And this is like Moses. Moses at three months. He's now rolling over. He's cheeky. And, he's, and how do you hide a three-month-old baby? So now they realize we can't hide him any longer. And in this oppression of slavery, they're driven to do something really extreme, which is to take him down to the river, yes, but in a hidden way and just hide hope and pray that he's going to be all right. How difficult was that? But the interesting thing about this, this whole family, they're in poverty, they're in slavery, and yet this is not their true identity. This isn't really who they are. Moses and his family, as mom and his dad and Miriam, the sister, and maybe Aaron came later, their inheritance is not being an Egyptian slave but they are part of a chosen people and a royal priesthood. And so Moses is born of Levite parents, and that is the priestly tribe in the tribes of Israel. So Moses' true roots goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's where he really comes from. So Moses, a little baby, has this inheritance back to Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, who was Abraham. Now, do you remember the promise to Abraham when he was called Abram? It's recorded in Genesis. And God promises him a nation, a family. He's not able to have children. He takes him out and he makes him look at the night sky. Then God brought Abraham outside beneath the nighttime sky and told him, look up into the heavens and count the stars if you can. Your descendants will be like that. Too many to count. And Abraham believed God. Then God considered him righteous on account of his faith. And so God draws Abraham aside. He shows him, this man with no children, that he's going to be the father of of a nation, that it is inheritance, it's a promise, that they will be God's chosen people belonging to God. And this special relationship begins. And then, of course, Abraham has Isaac, who has Jacob, and it filters down the line to Moses. So the blood running in Moses' vein is not a slave, it is the chosen people. And he's not a slave in his heart, in his person. That's not his identity. It is just his circumstance. Now, sometimes in life, we're in a circumstance that we can forget our roots and forget our identity because our roots are in Jesus. We've been grafted in. Our identity matters. We've been adopted into God's family. So whatever our circumstances, don't let it label you. Whatever your journey has been, don't let it label you. Whatever we've encountered, don't let that impression label you because we are children of God grafted in. And Moses wasn't a slave. That was his circumstance. He was a chosen man of the royal priesthood descended from Abraham. In Romans 11, Paul describes it like this. Although we were a wild olive shoot, he describes us because we're not part of the chosen people. We're the Gentiles, so we're like a wild olive shoot. But we have been grafted in. We're grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. The very sap that goes through that olive tree goes through us too. We have an inheritance in Jesus. It's important we know who we are, a child of God, adopted, grafted in. We don't live under a slave mentality, a poverty spirit, thinking worse of ourselves, creeping around this life when God has given us everything. And we need to live in that overcoming spirit that we have everything with God. And in that spirit, cope with our circumstance, however difficult. Let's not be helpless and oppressed because we are more than conquerors. No longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Whatever has happened on our journey, our identity is in Jesus. That's who we are. I remember many years ago when we were doing the Gap Project, we saw that there was many young people falling through the gap between school and further education or jobs in the area we're working in up in Penland. And we had a vision to change this. But when we went for funding, at that time, government and councils were very reluctant to fund faith groups doing work, even if that work wasn't faith. Although everything that we do is faith, but you know what I mean, it's an education project for young people. And we tried and tried with funding. And we weren't getting anywhere. And at the time, um, Julian was chaplain to the mayor, and I was consort. We had to go to all these events where you would network with all the, you know, top brass of who's in charge of everything. And I remember being taken aside by a very senior official. And they said to me, we have seen all your applications, one after another, going through for the gap. And they said, if I can give you a piece of advice, drop faith, and we'll give you the money. And I had a choice to make in that moment. And I was like, but that is who we are. That is our identity. It's not something we do, it's who we are. You take that from us and who are we? That's our very identity. And I turned to this person and I said, thank you so much for the offer. And I don't want to seem rude, but our faith is who we are. We can be nothing less than that. And I walked away, and I, I was trembling, and I thought, no, that's the right thing. It's who we are. And, you know, God blessed us so much that after that, all the funding we applied for, we got funding after funding after funding, so even when it was time to close the project, there was funding left, we had to go back to the funders and go, we, we got an overspill. Do you want it back? And they're like, no, upgrade your computers, upgrade the canoes. No, that's fine. We don't want it back. And And we were blessed. So let's live in the true identity of our inheritance and not submit to any kind of slave mentality but know who we are in Jesus. That's really important. And that was important for Moses and we see that as the story develops. Okay, number two, rescue. Now a rescue happens when something seems impossible. Have you ever been in a situation that just seem, it just seems impossible? you don't know how to get out. It just seems impossible. I think it's very chilling how Pharaoh tells the midwives to kill the babies at birth. When that doesn't work, he has them thrown in the Nile. It's a terrible thing. He doesn't want these boys to grow up. He wants the bloodline to end. there's no escape. It's an impossible situation. How do you hide a child? How can Moses survive? And it reminds me of Jesus' birth. Remember when Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph and Herod heard that there was a new king on the block and he sent the soldiers to kill all the babies aged two and under. And it's just like this. And yet an angel warned Joseph and he got up in the night and took Mary Um, and, and baby Jesus to Egypt where they would be safe. And it's interesting, isn't it, how they escaped into Egypt and now Moses needs to somehow escape out or bring the people out. It's interesting. You think about when Jesus went to the cross. That seemed an impossible situation, didn't it? At night, he's arrested. There's a false trial. He's stuck. There's Pilate. There's Herod. There's the Roman soldiers. He's taken to his crucifixion. And and Pilate asks him at one stage and says, don't you realize I can free you? But Jesus earlier had said, um, don't you realize, in Matthew 26, don't you realize I could ask my Father in heaven and thousands of angels would come and protect us and rescue me? He said this to his disciples. And, And that my Father would send them instantly. But if I did, how would the Scriptures be fulfilled with what must happen now? So in other words, Jesus was saying, It looks like there's no escape, but there is. I could call a thousand angels to deliver me right now, but this must happen. And Jesus chose to do an impossible, an incredible thing to go all the way to the cross and die for the things we've done wrong, that we could have new life, that we are grafted in, that we have freedom, that we have forgiveness of sins, that Jesus, who could have escaped from it, chose not to. He allowed it to take place for us, for you and me, Because he loves us so much. And then he defeated death and rose that we might have life. And here we are over a thousand years earlier with Moses stuck in Egypt about to be thrown into the Nile as a little baby. So we see Moses' mother is really resourceful now. She gets a papyrus basket, which is something they would have used every day for all kinds of things. They probably kept their salad vegetables in it. Oh no, they would all go off in Egypt, wouldn't they? But whatever it was, they had these little baskets that they made all the time. So she was resourceful. She got a basket, but she knew that it would sink. So she waterproofed it. It had a lid to it. But it was so risky and dangerous that the baby would drown or be eaten. Can you imagine putting your three-month-old in a basket in a river. How desperate is that? It seemed an impossible situation. What desperation and faith to actually take that baby down and put it in the river. Now, interestingly back in the 50s, when The Ten Commandments was filmed. Do you remember Charlton Heston? We mentioned him. Now, Charlton Heston, this is the film on the left of an actress with a little baby in a lidded basket and little Miriam, the sister, next to them. And it was actually Charlton Heston's own baby, Fraser. So in the middle of filming The Ten Commandments, Charlton's wife has a baby. He gets the call from the producer. And they say, guess what? Your baby is going to be Moses. So they're filming the Nile scene in a big tank. And they get this special basket, and they put the baby in it, and they're filming. And on the set, they're filming. And the, and the lady who's playing, Moses' mother there, is praying. And, and then what happened? The unsinkable happened. Charlton Heston's baby is in the basket. The basket begins to leak. It's in the middle of a big tank in, like, fake reeds and everything. People are shouting. They're not sure what's happening. They don't want to spoil the take. And uh, it's starting to leak. And the, and the basket starts to sink with his baby in it. This is true. I watched (laughs) Fraser... He's now, like, you know, my age, uh, giving a testimony of what happened. It starts to sink with the baby in it. Charlton Heston leaps in. Here you can see him in just his bathers. He leaps in, saves his baby. Apparently, just before he leapt in, there's a social worker on set who's supposed to look after children and animals. And she turns to him and says, I'm the only one with permission to save this baby. And in the voice of God, of Moses, he turns and says... I will be doing this, <laughs> dives in, saves his own baby. Now, that is on a film set. I mean, you can see how dangerous, how terrible this is, that he needs a faith-filled rescue. Well, so in Exodus 2-3, when it says, um, but she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Basket in the Hebrew language can actually mean ark. It was like she was asked to make a little ark. And that's just like Noah. Do you remember Noah in Genesis 6? God says to him, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. If we go back one, uh, lovely. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. And this little, like, basket, this ark to the reader would be like a symbolism or imagery of what happened with Noah. The Noah gathered all life into the ark. It went into the water, well, you know, the floods came to it, and it came out of the water. And in the same way, Moses went down into the water. He's put in the water in a basket, and as we know, he was rescued out of it. And to the readers there, it would be like an imagery or symbolism of the same thing that happened to Noah, that new life would come from this rescue out of the water. And many times we're in something that seems impossible, I remember when we were pioneering the church and there was maybe about 20 of us at the time and um, some senior leaders were doing a bit of a tour of Wales and we invited them to our house. And at that time we had very little resources, you know, under-skilled, not very much money. We invited these senior leaders and they spent a couple of days with us as a church, mostly in our house, maybe 20 people. And as they left, I remember they stood on our doorstep and they turned around and uh, we said, well, do you, do you have any advice for us? And uh, they turned around and they said, well, you know, you don't have to live like this. We think you should just go and join uh, this church in Clenethly down the road and become part of a small group. And we're like, oh. And they said, because basically, you don't have the building blocks to build a church. So we said, thank you very much. Goodbye. Close the door. And we went and sat down in our lounge together and we thought, well, you know, we're all young. Julie and I pioneered this church with seven young people. It grew to like 20 within the year. We're all young. Um, you know, we'd worked in other churches for about seven years, but we sat and we're like, we know that God has told us to do this, that we're going to have an impact in Swansea, in Penllyn. that we're going to help these people who are marginalized and impoverished, and God has called us, and we do feel that God's called us to touch a nation, and we had a decision to make whether our little basket would be rescued, little cornerstone church left floating on the Nile, you know. And what seemed impossible, we, we decided not to tell and discourage the 20 people that were with us. But we were like, God has said he is going to do something and we trust him to do it. And then a few weeks later, one of our friends, Martin Scott, who's an amazing prophet and heals the sick, he came to visit our church, and he spent a few days with us um, as a team and everything. And he said to us that evening, I have faith this church is going to grow. And I'm so glad he did, because here we all are 32 years later. So don't give up. If you're going through something that seems impossible, don't give up. Trust in the God of the possible. Jesus said in Matthew 19... With man, this is impossible. But With God, all things are possible. And this was in the context of, uh, you remember, the rich young ruler and his disciples following him and saying, we've abandoned everything for you. And in that context of abandoning everything to Jesus, he says, hold on in there, because I can make the impossible possible. So let's hang on. Okay, and number three, lastly, the women. I saw something I've never seen before when I studied this story, that when you get to you know, chapter 1 and 2 of Exodus, it's all the women who step right round Pharaoh. So Pharaoh is this tyrant who does what he wants. The killing of innocent babies is evil, and yet somehow the women in the story completely, quietly, subversively sidestep every plan that he, he, um, Pharaoh has. And it's interesting how the women in the context there in society were overlooked and dismissed. So the Hebrew women, you know, when they um, want to kill the baby boys, it's to stop the bloodline. But they're like, ah, the girls, you know, let them live. That's fine. Let them live. But they're the ones who cause the trouble. <laughs> they were dismissed and overlooked. But they're the ones who saved the day. And the rescuer gets rescued because all the women sidestep Pharaoh's rules. And I think this speaks to any of us who feel maybe, um, you know, not noticed or on the side or maybe I don't have an important part to play. But every one of us counts in this life. God uses all of us. And these women who are kind of like overlooked in the scheme of things, they're the ones who made the rescue. I love it. The midwives, the mother, the princess, the accomplices, the quick-witted sister, the slave girl bringing the basket. She probably knew she shouldn't do it with a crying baby in it. Brave, determined, resourceful. We see Moses' mother, what faith in God she had to take that risk every single day for three months. She wouldn't give in, wouldn't give in, wouldn't give in. It's ironic how in doing that, it ends up that she gets the protection of the princess and paid to look after her own baby. How funny is that? And ultimately, she has to give him away, and his story at the palace unfolds, but we see that next week. And then the princess, she must have been aware of the dictates of the king. But there she is. She's gone down to bathe, She sees this child. Different versions say she lost her heart to the baby. You imagine those big brown eyes of Moses in the basket there. And she says out loud, it's a Hebrew child. She knows it's a Hebrew child. But she still decides that she looks into those beautiful eyes to have the child looked after and receive it back when he's been weaned. It says she opened the basket and saw the baby. He was crying and her heart went out to him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then the midwives. Don't you just love the midwives in this story? They, they were so brave to stand up to Pharaoh and they deserve their names recorded, Shipra and Pure. And here we are, all these thousands of years later, talking about them because of their bravery. And they were more respectful of God than afraid of Pharaoh, and they thought of a way around it. In Exodus 1, 18 to 19, it says, Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives, having got their story right before they went, answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive and answer for everything. They were brave in speaking up. And I wonder, do we have any cheeky midwives among us who might do that? Do you think there might be? Let's have our next picture, please. Any cheeky midwives in the middle here? Any favorite little person? Can you imagine being resourceful and standing up to Pharaoh? I can. Maybe there's one in the midst, but who could join them on the shift? Because the other thing I noticed, there's only two on shift. So Shipra and Pua, we see they are summoned to Pharaoh, and there's just two of them working round the clock. Women of faith, and we know they were rewarded with babies of their own later. And isn't it odd how it was the women who were sidelined, but it's the women who rescued Moses. All the women under oppressive rule, but their faith in God supersedes that. They find a way round it. They are all faithful to God in the middle of pressure, slavery, bullying, and in the middle of all that, they stay true to who they are, to their identity, and to their faith in God. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing to see them live out their faith with determination and resilience. All these women, the mother, Miriam, the midwives, wonderful thing. The Egyptians treated the Hebrews so cruelly, And yet these women found a way to get round it. And Moses' parents are recorded in the Hall of Faith, or the Heroes of the Faith, in Hebrews 11. It says this, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Can you see how in seeing God had some purpose for Moses, they were no longer afraid? They trusted in God and they no longer had fear. Even though Moses was only a baby, they hid him by faith, unafraid. And Moses' parents would not submit to fear. Even the whole team of women lived beyond fear, living out their true identity and not submitting to the culture around them. God's identity, God's destiny for Moses would not be thwarted. And yet, this is the thing we we see. In this amazing destiny for Moses, God has something that only God can do, but that destiny is lived out in the small things every day, the little things that people do in faith. The same for you and I. We have a calling. We have a purpose from God, and we live that out, that journey to our calling, not in some big flashbang, but in the little faithful steps every single day. And these people showed bravery, resilience, resourcefulness. They just carried on in their face, And it's the small steps every day. Keeping a small baby quiet and hidden. Painting a basket with pitch. Hiding a basket in the reeds. In the ordinary things, destiny happens. Let's continue to be faithful in the daily, everyday things. It's the small things that matter. It's those things that count and lead us to our destiny. God had this awesome destiny for Moses. It would not be put off, but it was the people, and especially the women in this story, who faithfully kept the thing going. It's just incredible. Faithful people living it out in the small, daily, brave actions. And we're gonna end with a song in a moment. And when I discovered, when I was writing this talk, I just had this song going round in my head, and uh, thanks, the band can come up, that's brilliant. I had this song going round in my head, and um, I thought this is my moment to sing it as a solo, but wisdom prevailed, and uh, the band are going to play it instead. But this song is such a great song, it's almost like the Moses theme tune. I'm going to read a little bit of the words before we come and sing it. The words of the song is this, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. From my mother's womb, you have chosen me. Love has called my name. I've been born again into your family. Your blood flows through my veins. You split the sea so I could walk right through it. My fears are drowned in perfect love. You rescued me so I could stand and say, I am a child of God. Yes, I am a child of God. And that's for you and I, you know. Our identity is in God. Don't let other people press an identity on you. Our roots are in him. We belong to him. Let us just be faithful to him in the everyday and see the purposes of God worked out in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we are not slaves, but we are children of God, that we belong to you. I thank you, Lord, that our identity is in you. You came, you forgave us. You put a cloak of righteousness around us and we belong to you. I thank you, Lord, that we belong every single day, that your love is there in our lives every day. Help us, Jesus, if we find ourselves in an impossible situation. We ask that you will break through just like that faith of Moses drifting in the reeds and being found and being rescued We thank you, Lord, for all that you did for Moses and his family. And I ask that you help us, Lord, in our every day, that we will trust in you, that you'll help us in our faith as we walk with you, that your purposes will happen for us too. We thank you, Lord, that in all things, you are our fortress, you are our guide, and you are our deliverer. So, Lord, we ask that you'll bless us now as we come and sing this song, that you will do something within us, that we will have a shift by your spirit. If our identity has drifted off into something else, that it will come back, it'll just be such a connection with our identity in you. We pray it will so happen by your spirit now, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna sing this song together now, and let's kind of sing it as a prayer and a celebration of who we are in Jesus. Thanks, guys.